I want to thank Phil for really focusing us in on how super important the present moment is and what we do with it and the eternal implications that there are with that. My name is Ron Quint and I'm from the North Region along with my wife Renee. We love the singles. We have uh, some amazing, lovable singles in the North Region. And we also have two singles in our family. Our oldest son, Josh, is 29, and he is in the coastal L.A. region. And I, he rooms with Stephen, and I'm so glad because the uh, coastal L.A. region is the place for marriages to happen. So <laughs> as a dad, that really fires me up, Stephen, that you're zeroed in on that. And uh, our uh, second son, Drew, he lives in Cambodia. He's a business uh, manager for a nonprofit hospital. He went on a church planning out in uh, Cambodia towards the border of Thailand. So uh, we love the singles. And it's really great being here this morning and just getting this vibe of the singles organizing and planning and leading and carrying this event for all the singles throughout the LA church and I really want to thank Angela and Phil and your team for what you're doing here it's really great really fantastic I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10 Cy asked me if I had any keynote and I'm actually a PC guy so Keynote, I don't understand that. My, my caveman mind doesn't get around that uh, keynote stuff. And I, I actually, I do love using PowerPoint, but today I want you to know that all I have is my giant print Bible. All right? So if you have your Bible on your phone or your pad or your Bible, then you're going to be good to go here right along with me. And we're going to pick up reading in Mark chapter 10, right about verse... 32. But I, I want to tell you a story before we start that I read a while ago. There's this guy and he was in this uh, secondhand shop in the Bay Area, up north in the Bay Area, and he was walking around. It was one of those shops that just had shelves full and walls stacked and cluttered with all kinds of uh, knickknacks and stuff that people were putting out on consignment and trying to get rid of. And he was just... Uh, you know, spending some time there, looking around, and all of a sudden, he looked over in the corner, and on the ground, with milk in it, and a cat l licking up the milk out of it, was this, this bowl, this, this vase, that he recognized as being priceless, worth more than anything else in the entire shop, several times over, from the Ming Dynasty in China. He could not believe his eyes, not only that it was there, but it was off in the corner against the wall with the cat drinking milk out of it. And he launched a plan in his, his mind because he realized that there's no way the, the people running the shop had any clue what they had there. And so he walked up to the, the counter and the woman that was behind the counter and he just said... Uh, I noticed your cat. Forgive me, but I love cats. I gotta have that cat. 
could I, I'll buy the cat. I want to take, I got to take that cat home with me. And the woman said, you don't want that cat. That cat is a stray. It just kind of showed up here and we've been giving it a home, but I don't think you really want that cat. And the guy said, no, I got to have that cat. Really, I'll give you $100 for that stray cat right here, right now. And the woman said, okay, suit yourself, $100. Money changed hands. Here's $100. He picks up the cat. He's walking out, and seemingly as an afterthought, he says, I need something to feed the cat with. Could you throw in that bowl over there against the wall along with the cat? And the woman said, are you crazy? That bowl's from the Ming Dynasty. It's priceless. It's worth more than everything in our shop several times over. But I got to tell you, since we've had that vase, we've sold 13 cats. I love the story because there's, there's a sense of surprise in it. There's a sense of this guy thinking that he's seizing the moment and thinking that there's, there's people around that don't have a clue. Seemingly, they don't have a clue what's going on, but actually, they really did know what was going on and what time it was. And the question is, drawing from Phil's thoughts, do we get it? And are we clued in? Kairos... It's a great word, and it's a great theme. You know, the Greek language, it, it really is amazing that God chose the New Testament to come to us in the Greek language originally because it's rich in, in words and depth of words and choices of words for, for certain things like time. Not only is there kairos, but there's also chronos. The Greeks had a couple different words for time, and there's chronos, which is quantity of time, and then there's kairos, which is quality of time. When you're thinking of chronos, you're thinking of counting your minutes. When you're thinking of kairos, you're thinking of making your minutes count. And when you think of chronos, you look at your, your watch, your chronometer. You look at your watch and you, you get an idea of what time it is. But when you think of kairos, you look at your heart to think about what time is it. And we've got one of those moments in the life of Jesus. Not only when the sense of minutes are passing, but also in a sense of what the moment was that was approaching him. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 32. Let's pray again before we read God's word. Lord, thank you for this moment that we have together here with the singles in the L.A. Church. And we do pray that you'll bless this, not only as the minutes of our life are passing right here, right now, but also on a heart level, giving us a sense of what season it might be and what hour it might be in our lives and in our relationship with you and with the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mark 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was leading the way. The disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. All right, this is a great verse, and we'll just take that for a moment. You have a sense 
of urgency going on here. And by the way, our title of this message is Urgency, Leaders Who Lead Leaders. And there is a sense of urgency. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. And we get this sense of speed and of urgency because Jesus is leading the way. And then you've got behind him two groups of people. You've got his disciples, those who have been around him enough to kind of get used to him. But even so, even have been around him enough to get used to him, they are, as they get a sense of the way in which Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, they are what? The disciples. They're astonished. All right? So we're, we're getting a sense of what's going on with them. And then those who follow, those who are also there, they are afraid. Have you ever been around anybody lately that astonished you? Have you ever been around anybody lately that put some fear in you? Maybe you have some friends like that. You're afraid because you're afraid. What are they going to say next, right? But this was the sense around Jesus at this moment. But we also know this is a leadership passage. Because we see here what leaders really do. Jesus was a leader, not so much because of his position, but he was a leader because, guess what? He was actually leading. He was out in front. That's really what leaders do. And if you want to know whether or not you're a leader at any given moment, just look around and see if anybody's actually following you, all right? Because that's ultimately what leaders do. They, they show the way by going in that direction themselves first. And that's what Jesus was doing. Now, he's going up to Jerusalem. And what's he going to do there? Is he going to be crowned king? Well, as a matter of fact, he is going to have a triumphal entry. But that moment of the, the crowning of, of, of him being king is going to pass really quickly. And public opinion is going to change against him. Is he going up so that he can be invited in by the religious leaders and the people uh, and the prominent people of the day and so they can ask him for his advice and his insight into the will and the ways of God? No. Is he going up so that people can kind, kind of finally recognize who he is and what he's done and, and people can get a sense of how good he is? No. Let's see where he is going with such urgency. Verse 32, right in the middle. Again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Where is Jesus going? Up to Jerusalem. What's going to happen? Why is he going there? He's going to the cross. Where is he going with such urgency? Where is he going with such speed that people that are around him are astonished? Where is he going that people around him are, are afraid? He's going to the cross. He's going to bear the sin of the world. He's going to provide salvation for humanity. And by the way, just a little background here. It says that again he took them aside. And if you have the NIV, it, it says at the big heading before this, Jesus predicts his death a third time. Back in chapter 8, Jesus predicted his death. And that was the incident, you know, where Jesus predicts his death and Peter took him aside in chapter 8, verse 32, and rebuked him because 
Peter's idea of a Messiah and a king and a leader was not one who went to the cross and suffered rejection and died. And so what does Jesus do in 8 and 33? He takes him aside and he rebukes Peter, right? Okay, that's the first time. The second time is in chapter 9 and verse 30. Jesus again, for a second time, predicts his death. Now, here's kind of funny in the setting. Verse 32 is the second time he's going through this. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Can you just picture that? What's he talking about? What's he talking about? Hey, you ask him. Uh-uh. You know what happened to Peter last time he tried to ask him? No way. He was saying this, and he was repeating it, and they still were not clear on the concept. And so a third time, he predicts his death. Now, you would think by now, they would get the idea. Jesus is urgent to pick up his cross. They would get the idea the third time what following Jesus is all about. Yes, he was going to rise on the third day. He was going to be glorified on the third day. But on the way to being glorified, where he was leading was first to the cross. Anything beyond was through the cross. Let's talk just for a moment about leadership and the leadership of Jesus. Jesus was going urgently to the hardest task of all. How are we? One of the ways a leader leads, whether you have a position of leadership or not, is by running to the hard job first. Volunteering for the job that nobody wants to do first. Everybody has an opportunity to lead tomorrow at your worship service by just showing up somewhere somehow and volunteering for the job nobody wants to do. In our worship service, we're a load in and load out every single Sunday. And there are all kinds of people that volunteer and transform that high school into an awesome and amazing place of worship. And some of those that most amaze me are our hauling crew because they got to go to the storage unit, they got to get the stuff, they got to bring it in. They're there two and a half hours before worship. The first worship song is sung, two and a half hours. They're there unloading, setting up, and then afterwards, and you know it's getting to be summer, we're going to have. 90 and 100 degree weather in the valley and they're going to be there loading it up in the trailer and taking it back Sunday after Sunday 52 weeks a year year after year and I'm amazed by the people they amaze me and, and, and they're you who volunteer for the tough jobs you know what every Sunday in all of our ministries throughout the LA church you know what we want we want worship services that non-Christians coming to love. We want worship services to lost souls, you know, those friends of ours on the Titanic, that they come to, and whatever they might have been expecting, they are so warmly welcomed. They are so reached out to and befriended like in none other place they've ever been. And that happens because of all the people behind the scenes that show up to, to serve to make the place ready. And then here's something you do tomorrow morning. I mean, you can run to the tough job, which is initiating to somebody you don't know and risking that awkward moment. 
when you just introduce yourself and you ask them a few questions about them. I got a phone call this week, and it was from a guest who had been at our church. He just showed up. We're at a high school at the corner of a busy street. He didn't need, what's going on there? And he walked up and he asked, oh, it's a, it's a church, a church service at a high school? I got to see this. And he sat in there, and, and he called me. He got my number off of the website, and he called me just to say, I got to tell you, I'm in a lot of churches. I've never been to any church like this where people, not just, let's take a break, greet your neighbor, but where people are walking up and are introducing themselves and really seem to be interested in getting to know me. There's going to be somebody at your worship service tomorrow. And you run to them. I don't mean literally run to them and scare them. <laughs> but I mean you walk across the aisle, you look for them. And somebody told me, you know, the reason I don't do that is because I'm afraid I'm going to introduce myself to somebody that's been a, a disciple in the church for years over in the married ministry, and I just never knew him. That's all right. Risk it. Risk it. Risk offending one of those married people. That's okay. They'll probably be around next week. But just introduce yourself and get to know them and, and find some place to serve. Even tomorrow, find some place to make Sunday morning worship a great place. Find some place in your ministry. Every ministry has the jobs that need to get done that nobody wants to do. Jesus went urgently leading the way where? To the cross. To the toughest job that had to be done. The bearing, the weight of the sin of the world. And that, that was how he led and we need to follow his leadership. Okay, now this is the third time. You'd think they'd dial in. You'd think they'd get the point. You'd think they'd get the, the heart of the matter. Let's read on. Verse 35. Then James and John. When? Then. When? Right after he just talked about going to the cross, suffering, being rejected, spit upon. When? Then. Right then. James and John, you know, really savvy, really dialing into what's going on. The sons of Zebedee came to him, teacher... They said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. Now their picture of what Jesus is going up to Jerusalem to have happen and what Jesus was picturing are two very different things. They get the idea, this is the time. Our rabbi is finally going to be recognized as the Messiah. Everybody's going to rally around him. They're going to gather on the mountain. They're going to rally, and then we're going to overthrow the Romans, and we're going to reinstitute the glory of the kingdom of God. This is what they're picturing, and they have this preemptive move because they get the kairos of the moment, and they want to seize the moment before anybody else does. So right after Jesus finishes his third accounting of going to the cross, they say, we want on your right and we want on your left in your glory. And Jesus basically says to them, you don't know what you're talking about and what you're asking. Verse 41, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now why do you suppose they were indignant? You think they were indignant because of the insensitivity. How could they not get it? Jesus just poured out his heart about being spat upon and rejected and they don't clue in. Guys, we're indignant because of how insensitive you could be to our Lord. He's just shared the most poignant, most gut-wrenching thing in his life and you're stepping up selfishly. Is that why they were indignant? No. 
They were indignant because I can't believe those guys beat us to the punch. Can't believe they got in line ahead of us for the right and the left. You guys. Jesus called them together and said, and I picture it like this. Okay, guys, circle up. One more time. Let's go over this again. What are we about here? What is our concept of leading? What is our idea of greatness? If we're really going to seize the moment and recognize what the moment is on a real quality level, what is that going to look like? Okay, one more time. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Now look at these words. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus wanted them and he wants us to get the quality of greatness, true greatness, that he's looking for. And what it looks like is being a servant. And I really think in terms of singles in your life, and what time it is and what season it is in your life and what God might have called especially the singles in our church to be is to really be and lead the way in serving. There is a flexibility. There is an availability. There is, as Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians, there is an unencumberedness that you have about your life that can look like being more available for acts of service. Serving one another, serving the church, serving the lost. But if we're really going to get this, we've got to follow the same path that Jesus took right here. And we're going to have to go through the cross. If we're going to get to the kind of greatness that Jesus was talking about, we're going to have to go to the cross because at the cross, more than anything else, standing in our way to real greatness in the kingdom, really seizing the kairos, the moment, standing in the way is our pride. The thing that gums us up and slows us down and sidelines us is our pride. There is a pride of position. And real, real authority, real influence is never about position, but it actually is about impact. 
There's positional authority and then there's moral authority that comes about the moral authority by the person that's actually living out the life. And it's possible to be in a position and actually be doing more harm than good in the sense that a person can occupy the position but not actually be living out in an active way the life. So there's pride of position, but there's also pride of possession. And one of the challenges we have is that as singles, it's possible to have energy available and time available, but because we're looking at that next gadget that we gotta have, we gotta work more hours. And we've gotta chase more things because there's a certain pride of possession that we get into in our culture and our society. And it can be the weeds that come up and entangle and choke out the Word of God for making it unfruitful. The idea of having the next technology, not that technology is bad, but having the next piece of technology rather than thinking about freeing up your time and energy for the next opportunity to serve that might be available right then, right there. There's pride of possession that can clog it up and the cross kind of has a way of just refining that quest for more out of us. But then there's also pride of perspective and this may be the toughest one because we log enough time in life and we get to, to where we value our point of view. And so this keeps us on the sideline because we see something happening and we say, well that's messed up. I wouldn't do it that way. Well, I'm not going to get involved in that because, you know, they're heading in this direction and I've told them all along they need to go in that direction over there. We have a pride of perspective that can make us look with uh, disdain on anything that hasn't been our idea. It was Angela's idea. It was Phil's idea. So let them run with it. It's Clay's idea. Clay, you take that one. I'm going to be over here. Or whatever it might be. Pride of perspective. If I didn't think about it, if it wasn't invented here, then it must not be worthy of my investment. Whatever it is that might be holding us back, the cross, when we go there, it has a way of crucifying it and taking it out of the way. There's something in our lives, some form of pride, some ugly way that pride has, has raised its head in our life that just needs to be crucified for us to be fit. Even after all this, John and James, they still didn't dial into it. Jesus had to call them all together and dial it in again for them to be fit for leadership. And what he says is, is that it's really going to be about serving. One main point that I want you to get here is that in terms of kairos, in terms of what moment, what time, what quality of time it is in your life, it is an opportunity, it's a time for you to shine as a servant with real volunteered, run-to-the-tough-jobs acts of service in the lives of those around you. Now, in terms of, of leaders leading leaders, in terms of people having influence, let's just think for a moment. Who really do you trust? Who really, whose point of view, whose perspective, whose who's when they're gonna weigh in on something in your life you're gonna open up and you're gonna say this is quality I need to receive it is it the person that has the nicest clothes or the nicest car or the most recent gadget is it the person that's just necessarily in a position of 
leadership and a position of authority? Is it a person that has a title? Or is it a person that was there for you when you were sick and brought some chicken soup by to you? Is it a person that actually tuned in and got the fact that your heart was aching and breaking over something? It was just a word mentioned or they knew something was coming up in your life or a trip you were taking or something else and they dial into it and they're following up because they want to know more. Is it the person that grabs you by the hand and says, I know what's going on, I just want to pray with you over this and through this. Is it the person that says, hey, you need to know anytime, anywhere, time of day, whatever, if it's game on for you, I want to be there for you. I want you to know that. No, really. Anytime, anywhere, I want you to know that. Isn't, isn't that the person that we trust the most? It's the person who has served us in real, tangible, affected our life ways. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, be that person and you'll be that person of influence in their life. And I want to give you one other practical, and that is, you know, a way, and this is fail-safe, a way that you could stand out on your job, in the church, in your neighborhood, it is 100% guaranteed you will be different than 90 plus percent of the people around you. And it's simply this. Become a good listener. Really listen. Tune into the fact that finally there's a feeling created in the other person. They might be in your small group. They might just be at large in the ministry. They might be that visitor that you reach out to tomorrow at church. They might be a co-worker. It might be your boss. It could be anybody. But you, you, you listen to such a degree with such a quality that you create in them by your listening the sense that they feel you're understanding me. You're really getting what I'm saying. You get me right now, what I'm going through. You do that. And you are, in a very real way, serving that person, whoever it is. Your roommate, whoever it is. Somebody in your group, that person you just meet for the first time tomorrow. You are serving them. And you're also demonstrating what Jesus is talking about here, the heart of somebody that, that just wants to be there and be present and be available for the now of somebody in their life. Two stories and we'll be done. 1888, it's a guy named Alfred. He's Swiss, but he's actually visiting in France and a local paper presses the story of his death and his obituary. It was a mistake because it was his brother Ludwig that actually died. And they mistakenly printed Alfred's obituary and they titled it Merchant of Death Dies. The man who caused more people to die faster has finally passed. And the backstory to that is that he was an architect and an engineer and he had designed bridges and buildings 
all around Geneva. And in the process of doing that, he found that there was a way to mix newly invented nitroglycerin with some other, other substance, and he, he basically, in that process, invented dynamite. But of course, dynamite ended up being used not just for building, but it literally did end up, at that time, being used to kill more people faster than anybody else had ever imagined or dreamed of at that time. So Alfred reading this and being called the merchant of death and killing more people faster than any other in history, you, you probably don't know him as the inventor of dynamite, but I'll bet you know this about him. He resolved at that moment to change his legacy and his impact. And he took 95% of his wealth and he created an endowment through which people around the world, irrespective of nationality, national origin, who had benefited humanity, who had made life better for mankind, could be recognized on a global level. His name, Alfred Nobel. And that's really what we end up knowing him for. Because he ended up wanting to truly serve mankind. And you have an opportunity at any given kairos, any given moment in your life to say, I've been selfish. The impact that I've had, what it's like to be on the other side of me is the other side of a person that's kind of self-absorbed, kind of around in their own thing. And I want to I wanna leave any situation I'm in better for those around me. I want to serve them. And he made that change. One final story. You know his most famous speech, I have a dream, don't you? And you probably know his last speech, I've been to the mountaintop, just days before his assassination. He said, I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the other side and I, I may not get there with you because longevity has its place, but I may not have that much more time. He sensed that. You know his most well-known, I have a dream, and maybe his last speech, I've been in the mountaintop. But what you may not know of is his last sermon. He preached. He was a preacher, Martin Luther King, Jr. And he preached two months to the day before he was assassinated. On February 4th, an Ebenezer Baptist church he preached his last sermon, and it was called The Drum Major Instinct. And in it, he talks about that in every one of us, there is this drum major instinct. You know the drum major out in front leading the parade. That everybody has in us that, that desire for significance and meaning and somehow, some way, being able to be noticed like the, the guy in the, you know, the standout uniform with the standout hat, you know, with, with whatever twirling out there, out in front, leading the parade, recognized by one and all. The drum major instinct. We all have that in us. And we know the disciples had it in them. And he preached from this, this chapter in Mark chapter 10. And I want to just read to you an excerpt from it. You know his greatest speech, maybe his last speech, but his last sermon, two months 
Too much to the day before he died. Speaking of the text, he says, One would have thought that Jesus would have condemned them. One would have thought that Jesus would have said, You're out of your place. You're selfish. Why would you raise such a question? You know their question, Who can be on your right? Who can be on your left? You're out of your place to raise such a question. But that isn't what Jesus did. He did something altogether different. He said in substance, Oh, I see. You want to be first? You want to be great? You want to be important? You want to be significant? Well, you ought to be. If you're going to be a disciple of mine, you must be. I want you to be first in love. I want you to be first, Jesus is saying, in moral excellence. I want you to be first in generosity. This is what I want you to do. And so Jesus gave, King goes on, a new norm of greatness. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's a new definition of greatness. And he says, February 4th, Ebenezer Baptist Church, he says, and this morning, the thing that, that I like about it is by giving this definition of greatness, it means that everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You only need to be, have a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love, and you can be that servant. Two months before he was assassinated, he closed out with this. If any of you are around when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. And so as soon as this afternoon, as soon as tomorrow, wouldn't it be great for us to get the kairos of it right and just find somebody and in real time and in a real way just serve them. Maybe you listen to them. Maybe you run to the tough job. You volunteer for the job that nobody else wants to do. You look around and you see it. There it is. You know it's there because it's not getting done, but it needs to get done. And you volunteer for that. And you do that. And you'll have a moment of urgency. And you'll be a leader who's leading leaders. Amen.